1: This is a CBC podcast.
2: Hi, I'm Rebecca Zandbergan. In for Pia Chattapadai. Welcome to the Sunday Magazine podcast, featuring the stories we first brought you Sunday, October first, on CBC Radio. Mohawk writer Alicia Elliott has won acclaim for her bold, intimate essays. Now she's published her debut novel, and she's here today to reflect on its themes of motherhood, mental health and Indigenous life. Later on, Saskatchewan's premier says he'll use the notwithstanding clause after a judge halted his government's school pronoun policy. We'll explain what the move means and how it may stack up in this case. After that, we may be through with the pandemic, but COVID-19 is not through with us. As fall gives way to rising cases, we'll talk about how to think of this virus now and how vaccine misinformation has threatened science itself. And later on, the always funny and frank feminist writer Catelyn Moran turns her pen on men and boys. But first up, human rights advocate and former federal minister Erwin Kotler on how to contend with Canada's past treatment of Nazis. That's all starting right now on the Sunday Magazine podcast. There are still plenty of questions and anger after the decision to invite a Ukrainian veteran who fought for Nazi Germany to Canada's House of Commons. The Prime Minister issued an apology on behalf of Parliament this past week. Anthony Rota, the House Speaker and the person who extended the invite, has now stepped down. The opposition continues to press for more information about how Jaroslav Hunka was invited in the first place. And there are now loud calls for Canada to re-examine its own history and its record on dealing with war criminals and Nazi sympathisers. Erwin Kotler is Canada's Special Envoy on Preserving Holocaust Remembrance and Combating Anti-Semitism. He is also a former Federal Liberal Justice Minister, Attorney General, and the International Chair at the Raoul Wallenberg Centre for Human Rights. We've reached him this morning in Jerusalem. Mr. Kotler, good morning and welcome to The Sunday Magazine.
1: Good morning. I'm glad to be here with you.
2: What was it like for you to watch this story unfold and then really ricochet across the globe?
1: Well, for me, what was so dramatic about it was not not only that a standing ovation was given to a Nazi war criminal, but the question that remained still unaddressed was how did he get into Canada to begin with? How is it that he was able uh, to continue uh, with the ongoing impunity? And this raised the larger uh, question, which was the subject of the Deschamps uh, Commission. Of inquiry, the whole question of the imperative of bringing suspected Nazi war criminals to justice. Now, the Deschamps Commission, uh, before whom uh, I appeared, had some dramatic revelations. Uh, we knew, for example, because of the Deschamps Commission, that the cabinet committee at the time in, in Canada, in the aftermath of the Second World War, quashed orders in council to deport Nazis from Canada at the same time as it adopted orders in council to keep Jews out. Reminding me of what my late uh, colleague, Professor Irving Abella said, that in the aftermath of the Second World War, it was easier to get into Canada if you were a Nazi than if you were a Jew. And this uh, process uh, continued uh, unabated. Uh, We've had, for example, in 1962, a cabinet memorandum again, Warning against bringing Nazi war criminals uh, to justice and accusing Canadian Jews of seeking revenge against Germans and comparing what they called the racism of Canadian Jews who were seeking to bring Nazi war criminals to justice to the actual uh, racism of the Nazis themselves astonishing. Hmm. But these were revelations from the the Shen Commission, and that's why it becomes important now to open up. Uh, the archives of history, so that all the redacted parts of that dissent commission can become known and public. As they say, uh, sun, sunlight is the best disinfectant at this point.
2: You're talking about the Duchenne Commission. That, of course, was following the 1980s. Lots of talk about how Canada was harboring Nazi fighters. This was the public, public inquiry into that. And you served as counsel for the Canadian Jewish Congress on that commission. I understand it actually com- con- concluded that, that mere membership of the unit Mr. Hunke was part of was not enough to justify prosecution. How, how did it come to that decision?
1: well the, the the thing is that the um, whole question of the uh, nazi that uh, the, the inquiry suspected Nazi work while it was very compelling uh, in its recommendations, in other words uh it said that the bringing of Nazi workmen to justice was a moral and legal imperative that Canada should uh, use all the remedies uh, for that purpose uh, criminal and and civil that Canada should take a leading role in uh, the pursuit of international justice uh, and, and the like. At the same time, we still were beset by incredible legal memorandums that had said as recently as 1981 that there were no legal remedies to bring any Nazi workrooms to justice and said, well, it didn't make a difference because there were no Nazi workrooms in Canada in any case. And so you had an ongoing process of close to 40 years about denying that there were Nazi war crimes in Canada and saying it didn't make a difference because there were no legal remedies to bring them to justice. Oh, and when finally, we had the a uh, Commission. We still don't have the full story about what took place.
2: What is your sense of how many Nazi war criminals, and I don't know if we can use that word specifically as, as, as they haven't been found to be guilty of that, as, you, as you've said, but how many of these people are believed to be in Canada right now?
1: Well, we don't know because uh, we never got the figures uh, to begin with. And that's why it's so important now that the uh, redacted parts of the Duchenne Commission uh, be opened up uh, to public knowledge and to uh, public uh, scrutiny. There were different discussions as to how many uh, suspected Nazi workers there were in Canada. Some said there were hundreds, some said there were thousands and so uh, you had a large spectrum in terms of the of the numbers, uh, but at the same time, as I said, we never got to the full appreciation of what were the, the facts, and we never got into a full appreciation of the astonishing, uh, in effect, cover-up that went on for close to 40 years of denying that there were any suspected Nazi workrooms of justice and then adding to it that it didn't make a difference because there were no legal remedies to bring them hmm. to justice. So at this point, we need to, as I say, open up the archives of of history and shine that sunlight of disinfectant.
2: T- tell me a little bit more about Mr. Hunka and the division that he fought with because there there is some complications, I think, in the history of, of what he was doing. And I, I wonder your take on all of this.
1: Well, my, my take always is that, you know, we, we have to deal with the facts. And I, I think one of the problems that we had is that the, you know, the uh, Galicia Division, which w- was a division that both collaborated with and uh, participated in uh, uh, Nazi uh, war crimes, there too, uh, the whole truth about uh, this division, about the complicity in Nazi war crimes, uh, has not entirely uh, been opened up. Um, And so this is something that is part of, as I say, the need to open up uh, the archives of history. There have been some astonishing things that even the the Duchenne Commission, with its revelations, you know, dramatized, uh, but we never got the full truth. For example, you had situations where the, the Jews themselves were blamed for even seeking to bring Nazi workrooms to justice. And the Canadian government was quote warned by a cabinet order and council, warned against quote unquote, pandering to Jewish revenge, as if the very request to bring Nazi war at uh, to justice was in itself, quote unquote, inherently racist, no different from what the Nazis had perpetrated against the Jews. These were some astonishing and dramatic revelations. But the full appreciation and disclosure of the facts and, and the law has yet to be revealed.
2: Do, do you think it matters because the division he was part of, some, some people joined that. In part, it's believed, say historians, was that, you know, Ukraine was under the control of the Soviet Union, which were massive oppressors at the time. And they thought if we could join this unit, uh, perhaps we can get rid of the Soviet Union. Is, it, does that, is that relevant in any way?
1: Well, no, I I don't think that that is relevant if people were you know complicit uh, in, in in crimes. Uh, I think where it does become relevant now is in another dimension, and that is because of what took place uh, in the dramatic revelations in the Canadian Parliament. This is now being weaponized uh, by uh, Putin's uh, Russia today to support their false denazification claim against. Uh, Ukraine now and to justify their criminal aggression in Ukraine as if this is part of a denazification process. So there's there's two things going on here. One is the imperative uh, to know the truth about the whole history of suspected Nazi war criminals in Canada and why it took so long uh, to take action and why the action that was taken remained imperfect. The second thing is not to allow the whole thing to be weaponized by Russia. And that's why I've recommended elsewhere that Canada take the lead in the establishment now of an independent international tribunal to look into the question of Russia's criminal aggression against Ukraine so that they can't use these false denazification uh, claims. And again, the whole uh, imperative here is to open up uh, the archives so that we can sign, shine the sunlight of disinfectant and, and truth about what really went on so that we can have a better understanding today, both of the imperative to deal with suspected Nazi workmen who may still be remaining in, in Canada and the imperative at the same time uh, to bring Putin's Russia to justice. Yeah,
2: and we'll talk more about that in a minute. But but I'm curious what you think in the meantime should happen to Hunka, I understand we've heard from officials in Poland that they're hoping to extradite him, but Canada doesn't have a formal extradition agreement with Poland. So, how what how do we deal with him at this point?
1: Well, you know there are d- different ways of uh, dealing uh, with it. Uh, there, there is the question of the extradition, which the Shen Commission at the time said that was the best and preferred uh, remedy if there was an extradition a treaty in place or an agreement. Related thereto that could be established. The second thing, of course, is the remedy of, of uh, a deportation, and that's another remedy that would be available uh, uh, to Canada. The third, although this would be much more difficult at this point, would be one of uh, criminal prosecution.
2: I'm Rebecca Zanbergen in this morning for Pia Chattopadhyay on the Sunday magazine, my guest is Erwin Kotler, international human rights lawyer, former cabinet minister, and Canada's special envoy for preserving Holocaust remembrance and combating anti-Semitism. I know, Mr. Kotler, you have a long history of work in Canada and abroad on issues of genocide and war crimes. You've worked extensively on the Rwandan file as well. W- what are the greatest challenges of defining a war criminal? And, and then bringing some kind of justice when, when there's time and, and geography may not be on your side, of course.
1: Well, you know, um, our Section 11G of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which is the only international law expression in that regard, said that uh, retroactivity uh, shall not avail as a defense against prosecution where the crimes are criminal uh, under international law, according to the General principles of law recognized by the community of nations. So, in effect, uh, there is no uh, ground for estoppel or n- no ground uh, for withholding, because of the passage of, of time, uh, the need for bringing a Nazi war to justice. The, the Shen War Commission, to its credit at this, uh, the time, uh, said that we must use the full pl- panoply of remedies. Uh, criminal law remedies, extradition remedies, uh, deportation remedies, uh, etc. But while it was very strong in terms of the panoply of remedies that were recommended, uh, at the same time, the actual implementation has left much uh, to be uh, desired. And I think that Canada has to make the issue of bringing Nazi war criminals uh, to justice a priority uh, on its uh, justice agenda. As a matter of principle and policy. The fact that it has not done so is reflected, among other things, in the fact that the budget for bringing uh, war criminals to justice has has remained unchanged for over uh, 25 years. So it does not exactly reflect a priority in this issue. And we have yet uh, to really engage in the criminal law remedy. The first time we ever uh, initiated a criminal law prosecution. For a for war crimes with respect to a, and you mentioned you references a Rwandan uh, war criminal, and even here, you know, there's only been uh, two prosecutions in the, in that regard. So when you look at the number of regrettably hmm. and tragically genocides taking place in the world today, and the paucity of prosecutions engaged in by Canada, even though we've adopted a war crimes and crimes against humanity act, fact. I was a co-sponsor of that legislation uh, back in the year uh, 2000. Twenty-three years have elapsed, and we have, in fact, engaged in very few criminal uh, prosecutions, hmm. very few application of the remedies available.
2: I, I am curious, how, how how do you define a war criminal? How do you prove it when, for instance, the Duchenne Commission found that, you know, Junca being part of this division... That fact alone does not make him a war criminal, says the Duchenne Commission. So what are the variables any commission, any court would have to uh, adhere to to define to, to someone to be guilty of that?
1: Well, they would have to demonstrate that, in, in fact, uh, uh, he was uh, knowingly a part of a, a criminal, uh, in, in, in this instance, a criminal group that had... Uh, participated in uh, war crimes and crimes against uh, humanity. And we know that, in fact, that that had been true with regard to the SS Galicia uh, division. The question then would be, of course, of connecting what the division had done uh, to the person's membership in that division and what knowledge they had of the criminality that was taking place and what participation they had Uh, in that criminality, and whether the mere membership uh, in the division would then itself uh, qualify uh, for uh, that kind of uh, criminality. So there are various number of variables uh, to be uh, determined here. But the main problem that we've seen has been that across the spectrum, uh, there was very few suspected Nazi workmen that were ever brought to justice, regardless of the panoply of remedies that were available uh, for that purpose, uh, criminal and uh, civil, and that that has continued to the uh, present day. And so if we want to make the pursuit of international justice a priority, uh, then we have to, in fact, implement uh, what we committed ourselves to doing rather than just have it on the statute books.
2: And you, you talked earlier about how Canada was known to be an easy place to get into easier, potentially, if you were a Nazi than a Jew. But, but, but why, why did that happen? Why did Canada become known to be a place where you could safely come as a Nazi to Canada?
1: Well, you know, it, it began very soon after the second world war, astonishingly enough in 1948, uh, the, Uh, the United Kingdom government called upon commonwealth countries like Canada uh, with a dictum, and I quote from 1948, that the time had come to bury the past. And Canada was asked, among others, uh, not to proceed with regard to bringing Nazi war criminals to justice, in part because the geopolitics had changed already at that point. So while Holocaust as uh, survivors were were languishing at that time, uh, right after the Second World War, trying to get into Canada and and the like, uh, we were adopting positions to uh, keep the the Holocaust survivors out. At the same time, as we were letting suspected Nazi war criminals in, that's what accounted for what uh, Professor Irving Abella uh, himself stated that it was easier to get into Canada if you were a Nazi than if you were Jew. But then you had a succession of astonishing cabinet memoranda, orders and council that quashed, for example, uh, deportation orders against those who had uh, collaborated uh, with uh, uh, the Vichy uh, criminality. And at the same time, we're continuing to admit uh, suspected Nazi workers to Canada. So it was giving immunity on the one hand, uh, incentivization to come into Canada on the other, and keeping uh, Jews out at the same time, and then even blaming Canadian Jews if they sought to bring Nazi workers Mm. or sought to have Holocaust survivors brought in.
2: I want to talk a little bit about Russia, and I know you've been very forceful in the, about the need to hold Russia accountable for its crimes in the Ukraine war, and you talked about how uh, Russia has sort of weaponized this, this Nazi talk and, and harboring Nazis in Ukraine and, and talking about denazifying Ukraine. From your view, what is internationally, I mean, what is the responsibility to, to hold Russia to account, and, and how, how do we do that?
1: Well, there have been uh, prosecutions that have been brought uh, within the International uh, Criminal uh, Court uh, with regard to those that have been engaged in what's called the uh, abduction and and, uh, forced uh, kidnapping of of Russian uh, children. But the larger crime of aggression, which is uh, sometimes spoken to as the mother of all crimes, is not under the jurisdiction of any uh, particular jurisdiction that now exists or remedy that now exists. And that's why in order to charge Putin and the military and political leadership uh, of Russia involved in the organization and the planning and the execution of the crime of aggression, the mother of all crimes, as said, upon which have become attendant all other war crimes and crimes against humanity, we need to establish this independent uh, international uh, tribunal. There is precedent and principle for this. We've done it with the International Tribunal for, with regard to Sierra Leone and, and the like. A number of us have been involved in advocating for the establishment of this International uh, Tribunal. Canada is a member of the core group that has supported this, but its uh, advocacy has been less uh, public and assertive than it should be. And that's why we've called upon to, to take the lead in this regard,
2: Mr. Kotler, we don't have a, a lot of time left—about a minute. But I am curious, just before we go, what what you make of how Canada has dealt with this whole file, and 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 our our track record of of harboring war criminals, and and where we go from here at this point?
1: Well, I think that our track record uh, has, frankly, uh, been—if if you look at the whole historical record uh, from the end of the Second World War—then it was. It was a shameful track record that the Shen Commission exposed uh, a good deal of of that uh, shame. Uh, But even since the revelations of the Shen Commission were themselves, as I say, particularly important in which it said that there must be no sanctuary with respect to bringing Nazi workers and that this should be a priority on our justice agenda. We have not implemented that uh, call Uh, to action. And at this point, the pursuit of international justice must be a priority on the agenda, uh, both domestically and internationally, both with regard to the remnant of suspected Nazi war criminals in Canada, and with regard to contemporary uh, war criminals, such as those engaged in the criminal aggression against Ukraine. So it has to be a holistic approach, if I can use that term, both Mm -hmm. historically regarding suspected Nazi war criminals and contemporaneously with regard to the war criminals on the stage internationally today.
2: Erwin Kotler, thank you for speaking with us today.
1: Good speaking with you.
2: Erwin Kotler is an international human rights lawyer, former cabinet minister, and Canada's special envoy on preserving Holocaust remembrance and combating anti-Semitism. You're listening to the Sunday Magazine Podcast. I'm Rebecca Zanbergen. And now I want to talk to you about stories, the ones we tell to better understand ourselves. From creation stories, imagining how we came to be, to cautionary tales that keep us from danger, to the gritty stories, the ones that tell hard truths and don't shy away from struggle, depression, and loss. Alicia Elliott's new novel, And Then She Fell, mixes all of those elements. It follows her acclaimed essay collection, A Mind Spread Out on the Ground, which explored growing up between her Mohawk and non-Indigenous heritage in the U.S. and Canada, in and out of poverty, grappling with her mother's mental illness and her father's abuse. Alicia lives in Brantford, Ontario, within the Six Nations Confederacy, and she's with me today in studio. Good morning. Good morning. So the character that is central to this story is Alice, and she's a, a, a new mother. She's struggling with postpartum depression. I understand this is a story that you have been writing for a long time.
3: Yes, very long.
2: How did it begin?
3: So it started when I was in my undergraduate creative writing program, and I was trying to think of what I wanted to write for my short story that I had to submit. and. One of the things that was really formative um, prior to going to university, I had already been accepted and everything I had applied, but I had gotten pregnant when I was 17 and then gave birth when I was 18. And so I had my son in late July and I was supposed to be going to university in September. Mm. And so we're very fortunate in that my husband's mother took on caring for our son like full time, basically. And then I would come home as soon as I was done classes on Friday, my dad would pick me up and then I would stay until as late as I could on Sunday and then like keep going back and forth. And the whole time I was like, I really I felt so much shame and everything. But I I thought it was like a calculated risk that I needed to take. So it would be better in the long run if I did this now. And then we figured everything out since it seemed to work out that way. But um, while I was in university, I wanted to do the most I could for my son. So I was pumping breast milk Mm -hmm. and then I would store it in like a little freezer to take home on the weekends for them to mix with the formula to try and like, you know, have those nutrients and everything. And it was such an alienating experience because I was 18 and a mom and every four hours I was back in my dorm room, you know, pumping breast milk and everyone around me is like, obviously 18 year olds who are, you know, having fun having parties you know what i mean going out and like it was so clear how different that experience was and even when i did feel comfortable enough to share with people that i was a mother I noticed like there was like a pulling away mm. of, of it. And so like this idea that, you know, mothers are boring. If you'd want to talk about your children, how dare you? You're, like that's so boring. You know, that's not interesting. There's nothing intellectually stimulating about the experience. And I also felt that when I gave birth, like even physically, my whole body had changed in ways that I felt I was totally unprepared for, even having read all of these things. And the month and a half that I was at home with my son was so disorienting in ways that like it almost felt like you know I always say like it felt like I was tricked almost like Mm. what that experience was like yeah and so I kind of channeled all of that into writing a short story about how hard it is to be a mother those everyday realities and really pushing back against this idea that there's nothing intellectually stimulating or interesting about it because it's so formative like it's it's so difficult. You're keeping a, a child alive. That that child relies on you. You're being pushed to all of your limits. And you've just given birth, too. So your body is, mm-hmm. you know, in this state of healing from, like, a major trauma. So mm. that was kind of where the story started. And then, of course, it just kept getting longer. It felt like it was never finished. So it just kept getting bigger. Yeah. And now it's a novel.
2: Yeah. And now it is a novel. And in it, Alice talks a lot about her. She seems to believe that the baby hates her. Yeah how does that come to be i mean it, there's a lot about nursing in there the baby unwilling to take her breast and 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 being what she perceives as unhappy i mean what wh- where did that come from as i kind of hinted at
3: for me personally there was it was difficult because once i had gone to school when i came back and if i were trying to nurse it was so much easier at that point for my son to drink from a bottle and so it was like a very very back and forth thing and there's something that's so visceral about that connection between a mother and and a child who's nursing and so it feels like there's some sort of intent there even though there is absolutely no intent it's just a baby right the baby doesn't know and so but it's so emotional and so Connected to what you what we perceive to be good mothers to be or to be able to do to magically make sure that their child is never crying and always happy and that's what a good mother is and so I think that it's easy, especially when you're very tired and exhausted, to kind of have those thoughts circle back and be like, this is my fault. I'm doing something wrong and my baby can tell, you know, that kind of mm-hmm. fear
2: and paranoia. Alice struggles a lot with whether or not she's doing the right things, if she's a good enough wife, if she's a good enough mother, if she's a good enough um, Indigenous person and honoring her ancestors in that way. I mean, and she straddles two worlds. She's married a white man and she's moved into the city. I mean, how, how did you sort of write a character that is straddling these two worlds? And how much did you draw on your own experiences in doing that?
3: Um, I think it felt very natural because I didn't grow up on the res. I didn't grow up on Six Nations. I grew up in different places in the States and then eventually moved when I was in high school to six nations. And so going from one to the other, you're able to see more like why, can't we have running water why can't you know what i mean like literally as soon as you drive off the res all of the houses are connected to a water line that the federal and provincial government fight over who is responsible for funding as soon as there's a reservation line and so seeing that i was just like why is it like this you know what i mean and you are aware of that when you grow up on there but like it was just so jarring to go from having to have not (laughs) or having not i guess um so to do that it was very clear that you know there are these differences and when i was in high school all of the kids who are, who are going to high school on six nations have to be like bust out because there aren't high schools on the res so when i was going to school in brantford it was like they had no concept of what life was like even though we were right there they had no concept of what was going on or the struggles or anything like that and so it was very apparent to me that that these things were happening, and that so there was automatically that straddling just going to school every day, mm-hmm. and so I think that you know having that but then having it magnified by being displaced to Toronto, it, it doesn't seem like it's that far, but it is so far, and when you don't have like your community around you because at least when we were going to high school, we would come back home and like there's your community, right? everybody understands what you're going through and that isn't the case really when you're kind of living in another city. So I think that that kind of, Dynamic is just like really amplified when you're going from res environments to non-res environments.
2: Mm-hmm. And Alice is is sort of struggling with um, seeing and hearing things. It's sort of unclear in the book um, what is happening to her. She keeps hearing uh, Pocahontas, the Disney's Pocahontas, um, and 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 speaking to that character eventually becomes uh, another name and another. Uh, so I'm just curious in in all of this. I mean, how how did you decide that you want wanted to write about a woman who's who's struggling with her sense of mental health, she thinks, and it's not clear really what's going on. So
3: there's um, probably a terrible coincidence in that there was a point where I realized I wanted to kind of have more thriller, horror-y elements added to it, and it occurred to me that other than postpartum depression, postpartum psychosis is something that's not really well understood or really even talked about. And so I started doing research into that and found that most women who had experienced that didn't know it was a possibility either. And reading kind of their accounts and everything. And as I was doing the research for that, my and I talk about this in my first book, my own mother has... Um, Uh, schizoaffective disorder. So it's a bipolar disorder with um, schizophrenic elements. And so I have seen her in psychosis and mania and all of these things. And it was always my greatest fear that that would happen to me because I knew there was genetic elements to it. And then in August of 2020, that did happen to me. Um, There was just a, a, a perfect storm of terrible circumstances that made it so that I was on the other side of that. And even though I had seen from like very close up what that looked like for my mother, the way that I had been kind of taught to frame it was in this way where it's like, you can't trust anything she's saying when she's manic. She, you know, she's so deceptive and like you can't believe anything. And so like that really charged how I viewed her. And then when I was on the other side of that, that was all being leveled against me. And so knowing that and knowing how I I had assumed all of these things about what it would be like to be in that state and even having read other women's accounts of this from the inside, it still didn't prepare me for what Hmm. it actually was like. What did you learn? Well, I think that it felt like, It was almost like transparent overlays of reality. And so I could see and understand and comprehend well everything that was going on in what everyone else would consider like real life. But there was a second thing that was on top of it. And I was aware that other people couldn't see or hear or whatever, but it felt like it was still real. And so I think that that, this idea that oh, well, I was lying about this or that and the other thing. And I was like, no, I'm not lying. Like, I I have proof of this, but no one would believe anything that I said because I had the psychosis. And it was like they thought I couldn't understand what was happening around me. I could understand. Like, I I have vivid memories of how all of it went down and how terrifying it was to, even more so than, than the psychosis, was how people were so quick to dismiss and dehumanize me and it was like all of the things that i had done to try and build my own reputation they just were thrown out the window as soon as you know oh she's crazy and so that feeling i think was something that was really really transformative in terms of how i looked at the situation and the character and how i wanted to portray it and what i felt was responsible in terms of portraying that
2: it, it you know it, people will draw comparisons between your life and alice do, does that bother you or do you do you feel as though you know you, you're writing a fiction book that's what authors do yeah. um but did, did i mean how much is it sort of something that you at least drew from your own experience
3: well I think it's funny because I already wrote a nonfiction book. And so <laughs> I just like, um, if I wanted to write another nonfiction book, I would have written another nonfiction <laughs> book. But what I thought was so transformative and so important to me about it being fiction was that whereas in my real life, all of these things that had befallen me, I couldn't change those things. But I could change those for Alice. I could make it so that her family did believe her, or like parts of her family did believe her and in some ways, it was kind of healing to imagine what that would have looked like if you know members of my family who were in total trauma responses when this was all happening and i, I don 't blame them for anything, but they 're also carrying forward a societal expectation that i don 't think a lot of people really interrogate how they look at people who they think of as crazy, who they think of as scary, and all of these things, having the scary mental illnesses. They don't really interrogate what that looks like and how that means that they treat people who are obviously exhibiting symptoms. And so that was something that I was very aware of as I was writing kind of the the difference between them and, you know, like none of the things that happened to Alice in the, in the novel have happened in my life. I had like my experience of psychosis and mania was very different from her experience, but those inner feelings, that understanding of once you see it, now you can't unsee how someone perceives you because of this. And then whenever you look around and you see, you know, even walking through the streets of Toronto, if someone is having a mental health crisis, how everyone turns away, how everyone laughs and, you know even though it's not Alice is not me I all of that emotion and understanding and, and everything went into her her emotion and understanding
2: I, I'm sorry you you went through all of that it, it sounds I mean it's not you know I think a lot of people will will resonate with the words that you're saying H- how are you doing now um I'm very fortunate in that I haven't had another episode
3: so i'm i'm good in that regard um and it and the other thing is is like i think people have this assumption that once you're no longer in that state that you can see everything clearly but the thing that was so unexpected for me was that when you're in a state like psychosis, mania, everything you're doing makes sense. You understand everything. And so if someone is doing something and you interpret it in a, ter- in a particular way, you know why that is. And once you're no longer in that state, you still have that understanding. You know why you did those things. And so that's why it's very hard sometimes to to be like, oh, yeah, I was crazy. Because like there's this very bizarre misconception that... When you are in that state that like once you're out of it, you're like, oh, well, that was that made no sense at all. But it did make sense. Mm -hmm. And so it was something that I've, you know, I'm very fortunate in that I'm not doing that now. And I'm trying to take steps to make sure that I'm level. But I I don't know what's going to happen in the future. It's something where it could happen at any given point. Right.
2: Mm hmm. I I want to talk a little bit about Alice, and during the course of the book, she's trying to rewrite the Haudenosaunee creation story, Mm -hmm. a story of Sky Woman, Um, and she sort of has these fits and starts of trying to write this book and really wanting to honour her father's stories that were told to her and wanting to make him proud. Tell me a little bit about about what you were trying to achieve, and Alice really trying to successfully tell the because she's she feels the incredible weight of of sharing this story for generations and generations to come. what What were you hoping to to show the audience in that way?
3: Um, one of the interesting things, I guess, or um you know, Haudenosaunee people are very, very, we're very proud of our history and, and of of everything, our philosophies and our laws and all of these things, our culture and language. But the thing is, is that what I find very fascinating uh, is that, you know, the entire field of anthropology in the U.S. really started with these academics being fascinated with my people and coming and spending time. And then they would then write these these things that got them prestige that, you know, developed an entire field. And so they were able to take our stuff and then go away. And it's fascinating because in some ways their understandings sometimes didn't match up because of they were coming with their own preconceived notions and and interpreting things a particular way. Mm -hmm. But when they did leave, because there was this active, concentrated effort by you know, the country of Canada and, and also churches and everything to try and, like, push our culture out of us. In some ways, those texts then are the ones that we have to return to ourselves to try and wrestle back our culture and, you know, rebuild. And so I was, like, very aware of this history and this fact that like so much that's written about us has been not written by us. And that's how everyone interprets because there is this responsibility when you're writing something because people are going to access it who have no concept of and have no way of fact checking any of this so they're just going to believe it right. And so for us to actually be able to write about ourselves and really think about our own culture and our own language in ways that are relevant to us. I think that that's a really powerful thing And it also bears a lot of responsibility. And so Alice in the book is kind of like, am I doing this the right way? Um, What's the long term ramifications if I make this narrative choice over this narrative choice? And I think those are things that are very important to people who are aware that this representation has so much weight, because they know what the effects are, if that is misinterpreted. And then used against you and your people later down the line so i think that that's something that maybe people who don't who don't have to worry about their culture and their language disappearing they don't have that concept of what that responsibility entails and so alice is really wrestling with that in a way that i also wrestled with that as i was writing it and i thought it was better to just put it in the book about what it is so that it was a more accurate reflection of the choices that storytellers make mm-hmm. all of the time whenever they tell a story.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, it is, we just marked Truth and Reconciliation Day in this country. Uh, reconciliation, of course, is not something that we accomplish in one day, <laughs> and this is certainly something we've talked a lot about. Um, but what will you be thinking about the days ahead as, as you share this story and and more about yourself and the Haudenosaunee creation story? What do you turn to in those moments?
3: Um... I generally try to turn to my own community because in a lot of ways, I think that the public is much further ahead in terms of understanding and wanting things to happen than the people who are in charge and making these decisions and by which I mean politicians and and also police chiefs. I mean, we're looking still at police chiefs in Winnipeg still refusing to search the dumps, even though this has been something that has happened there's precedent for them searching dumps for remains before but they're refusing to do that when it comes to indigenous women so it, it comes to a point where you know now there's blockades now there's all of this stuff because that's the only way that canada ever listens to us that is so you know there's this idea that we were so angry and all of this stuff we have every right to be angry you know and and as you know we have politicians who love to You know, wear an orange shirt and buy an orange donut from Tim Hortons and say a land acknowledgement and say, aren't we so progressive? Let's pat ourselves on the back. What are they doing when it comes to indigenous women who are right there in the dump in the bodies? Why are they not interfering with that? Why are they not putting pressure? They're saying that that's okay. You know, like this is what liberal politics looks like. It's all about representation and what it looks like on the surface. It's not about caring. And going deeper they love the idea that we can buy reconciliation with an orange t-shirt and a donut but they don't like the hard work of actually having to reckon with how systemically this continues to happen by their allowing people to continue to do these things and devalue indigenous people and that is the truth and I am hoping that people are going to really think about the truth and come to terms with it because this is how it happens by death by a million cuts. Although only it's not, um, it's not cuts to us. Those are our families. And so I hope that, you know, the, I'm going to be focusing on the joys and, and because that's what we need to get by. Oh, that's what we always needed. We always, you know, we're always laughing. We're always like, you know, that's what my family does and that when we're together, but I'm hoping that Canadians are thinking about the truths of right now because we can 't get to reconciliation until we look at the truth we 're always going to be fighting over what 's true if we aren't actually looking at what 's in front of us mm-hmm. and we 're keeping a blindfold on
2: and do you hope when people read about Alice in your book that they that they find a bit of that truth and 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 they feel some of what you 've just described? I hope so, but i mean i'm <laughs> I,
3: i'm not naive like however people are going to interpret my work is how they 're going to interpret it. But I do hope that how I have constructed Alice and how she talks about these things, because, like all indigenous people, we're all aware of these things constantly. We can't not be. And so, you know, she thinks about in the course of the book, the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Inquiry comes out report. And so that is a topic of conversation at a dinner party. And she has to listen as these people say these things to diminish the history of this country. And so it does fit in, you know what I mean, with the idea of truth and reconciliation. And I hope people
2: think about those things as they read the book. Alicia Elliott, thank you for coming in this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Alicia Elliott's new novel is called And Then She Fell.
4: The climate is
1: changing. So are we.
2: Some call it the nuclear option in Canadian politics. Others think it is a useful tool. I'm talking about the Notwithstanding Clause, a mechanism in the Constitution that allows governments to temporarily override or bypass certain parts of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And now Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe has said he's prepared to use that option after a judge ordered a pause on Moe's new policy on gender identity in schools. Now, that policy would require schools to get parental consent if a student aged 16 and under wants to change their name or pronoun. Charisma Mathin is a University of Ottawa professor and an expert in constitutional law. Good morning. Thank you for joining us.
5: Thank you so much.
2: Carissima, I want to get to the ins and outs of the the notwithstanding clause, but first what was your reaction hearing that that the premier would invoke this?
5: Well, I wasn't as surprised as I would have been say 5 years ago. And indeed, the once the uh, lawsuit w- against this policy was announced, I believe the Premier said at that time he would be prepared to invoke the notwithstanding clause. I was maybe a little surprised that the decision was taken just in the face of an interim injunction, which doesn't decide the actual charter issue, but was the court's decision that it was appropriate to, as you say, put a pause on this policy um, to maintain the status quo before the policy while the actual charter issues could be hashed out. I think we can call that a, a, a fairly striking move by the government to to not even wait for a court ruling.
2: Remind us why the notwithstanding clause exists in the first place. What What is the point of it? Well, the
5: notwithstanding clause was an addition to the constitutional package that was negotiated by uh, the Prime Minister of the time and the provincial premiers in 1980, 1981. Uh, there were a number of premiers who were uh, very concerned that the addition of a charter of rights to so to entrench certain personal liberties and freedoms within our constitution would significantly entrench on their powers, their provincial powers. And so they were concerned. They were suspicious, even in some ways, of what the effects of that could be. And so they were resistant to the entire package. And so one of the things that brought a number of them on board was the addition of this clause into the Charter, whereby any legislature, so that can be the Parliament of Canada or a provincial legislature, can declare that one of their laws shall operate notwithstanding a number of the rights in the charter. So the notwithstanding clause doesn't apply to all the rights in the charter, but it applies to many of the really important, um, hmm. the rights that people would would really identify with, like equality, expression, fair trial rights, etc.
2: So, so there are limitations, though, it sounds like.
5: Well, the notwithstanding clause can uh, only be invoked for laws that The province has the authority to pass. It has to be an express declaration. So it has to be very clear that they are invoking the clause and then they have to specify which of the rights they um, wish to uh, override, if you will. Included in that is the uh, limit that it can't be used retroactively. Other than that, there really aren't a lot of limits. It's in Mm. place for five years it can be um, reenacted um, a- at that time, an unlimited number of additional times.
2: Now, right off the top, you said you weren't as surprised as you may have been, you know, previously, historically, we we didn't use it as often. But in the last five years, you, you suggested we've seen it being used more often. T- tell me a little bit about that.
5: Yes. Well, the clause was um, not used that frequently, other than in the province of Quebec, which has a somewhat different relationship uh, with the whole history of of the Charter and so forth. But other than in the province of Quebec, it was used very infrequently. Um, Saskatchewan, in fact, is one of the provinces that used it in the 1980s. But then uh, we really hadn't seen the clause as a a matter of debate. It wasn't frequently being urged on politicians, either federally or provincially, But in 2017, 2018, uh, the government of Saskatchewan at the time decided to use it in relation to a court decision that affected um, the funding of certain schools. And it was found that the particular funding arrangement that was uh, put in place by the government infringed on freedom of religion. And so the premier of the time, who was Brad Wall, decided that this would be a moment to go back to the notwithstanding clause. It was then also um, really being uh, discussed in the province of Quebec, and it was invoked on two occasions there, one in relation to religious clothing, another in relation to uh, a new law protecting the status of French. And then I think very strikingly, we saw it being invoked in Ontario. You know, the largest province in Canada had never before used it. And we saw it either invoked or used on three occasions. So we saw this spate of of uses and suddenly it became a thing that politicians seemed to be more comfortable with.
2: And and so what's going on? I know Globe and Mail columnist Andrew Coyne has said that this is an, an ongoing evisceration of, of the Charter. Is that is that what you think is going on?
5: Well, I think... What's going on is that once you start to push on that door and you see what the consequences are, because the thing about the notwithstanding clause is that we only have one judicial precedent on it, which is a case from 1988 called Ford. And in that case, which dealt with a Quebec law, the Supreme Court of Canada basically articulated a very hands-off approach to um, judicial review of the use of the notwithstanding clause. And said other than some fairly technical limits, the court wasn't really going to um, get into the circumstances, you know, was its use justified and so forth the idea had always been that the real uh disincentive for using the clause was that it would cause political backlash because Canadians are very much attached to the charter and are still still view the charter of rights favorably but what we've seen is is that in these various uses that have come up with a couple of exceptions there hasn't seemed to be a lot of political pushback in the particular Provinces that have used it. Uh, we've seen a number of governments actually return to power after using the, the notwithstanding clause. And so if governments don't see a real cost to using it, and it's a way for them to have their policy choices maintained, then uh, what you'll see is, is I think, greater, greater use of it. And of mm. course, they can also use it to, you know, achieve a variety of goals
2: is there any recourse? i mean, if 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 a government uses the notwithstanding clause, it can it be challenged in court and reversed?
5: in terms of the actual challenge to the use of of the notwithstanding clause itself, if it's in relation to a law that's within the authority of the province or the federal government as it were to pass, it's very difficult to challenge that specific invocation except by perhaps, urging the Supreme Court of Canada to reconsider that 1988 decision. So with respect to actually challenging the use of the clause in a specific instance and getting those charter rights back on the table, uh, you'd have to engage in the argument before the Supreme Court of Canada. It is possible in some cases to argue that there are other sections of the Constitution that are um, affected by the particular law, and we will probably see litigants trying to draw in other constitutional provisions. And the other route, of course, is the political route. So in Ontario, uh, in in 2022, the government used the notwithstanding clause in the context of uh, back to work, in, in the context of imposing contracts on a segment of education workers, probably thinking that there would be support for that. And the backlash was quite intense. And in fact, the government resiled from that, sort of um, revoked its declaration of the notwithstanding clause within a week because it did not pan out as it thought it would. I,
2: I am curious, before we go, do, do you think there's something inherently different about using the notwithstanding clause for the right to strike or, or an issue about striking in workers versus um, the rights of trans and non-binary youth? I mean, it seems like two very separate issues. And 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 do we know, you know, the notwithstanding clause is intended to have such a, a broad range?
5: Yeah, I think that's a it's a good question. Um, Uh, All charter rights, of course, are profoundly important. Any charter right that's, you know, subject to the notwithstanding clause, I think you you could find in a particular case, it will be profoundly important to the individual affected. But when you talk about really vulnerable minorities that don't necessarily have the political power to assert or to to gain the um, consent of the majority to protect their rights, I mean, that's sort of what the entire notion of entrenching rights in our constitution is meant to address. And so we have to be careful that in in some of these cases, there may be conflicting rights. You know, people don't necessarily view the situation in the same way. But when we are talking about these very, very small groups of people that don't have a lot of power in a particular society, We want to be careful about when we use something like the notwithstanding clause. And in particular, the idea of using it so that you remove the opportunity to make arguments about the rights in a court and at least to get the guidance from the court as to whether, in fact, there is a charter violation, that's something that should give us pause, too, because... That seems to really be moving us towards a, a very different um, universe in which we we you know understand how our rights operate.
2: H- have we lost our way with the notwithstanding clause? I think
5: you know it's certainly being used in in more ways and more dramatic ways. I think we need to acknowledge that it was put in the constitution, so it's it's hard to argue that it's illegitimate in a constitutional sense. But this entire saga i think is bringing up some really fundamental questions about what is the relationship between rights and legislative power what is the role of the courts in our constitutional order what is the role of people of populations when they are um faced with these kinds of decisions you know what are the kinds of things that people will value and find important and will advocate for. Uh, these are really almost, I would say, almost existential questions for our country. So it's a, it's a very sobering moment, I think, um, for all of
2: us. Okay, Karisama Mathen, thank you for your time this morning. It's my pleasure. Karisama Mathen is a law professor at the University of Ottawa. I'm Rebecca Zanbergen in for Pia Chattopadhyay, and you're listening to the Sunday Magazine Podcast. October has arrived, and with it comes cold and flu season. COVID-19 cases are on the rise again across the country, and that has some doctors worried there could be a repeat of last year's triple-demic that saw hospitals flooded with COVID, flu, and RSV patients all at the same time. Health officials say the best bet in avoiding that is a renewed push to get Canadians vaccinated and boosted. But between COVID fat- fatigue and anti-vaccine misinformations, still resonating with some. Convincing people to roll up their sleeves could be a challenge, and that's one that Dr. Peter Hotez knows well. He is an American pediatrician and virologist who gained prominence during the pandemic for debunking anti-vaccine conspiracy theories, not to mention his signature bow ties. His new book is called The Deadly Rise of Anti-Science, A Scientist's Warning. Dr. Hotez, good morning and welcome back.
0: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
2: Of course. I just want to start to, to begin this conversation with the lay of the land as to where we are right now. I know we're seeing sort of steadily rising numbers of COVID going up in both the U.S. and Canada. I mean, what are you worried about as we as we head into cold and flu season? Yeah,
0: you're, well, first of all, it's, it's hard to really know because we're not monitoring it nearly as well as we used to, but we are seeing a pretty steady increase in uh, COVID hospitalizations since the summer. So we reached a low point, uh, a nadir, around late June, early July, and and then it's been going up pretty steadily. So the numbers are on the rise, uh, both in hospitalizations, wastewater testing, positivity, both in the United States and in Canada. But a couple of things about that. First of all, we are starting at a very low level, uh, the lowest level we've seen in a long time. So even though the numbers are going up, it's still less than it was in 2021, 2022. So, so that's potentially good news. And in the U.S., it's actually started to plateau a bit. Not, not I haven't seen those numbers plateau yet in Canada, but in several parts of the U.S. it has. The question is, is that what it's going to be? Kind of a, a bump rather than a wave, or is are we going to see then another big surge uh, coming up? And and I think the 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 most important message for this morning is there is this new XBB um, booster or annual immunization, as as some are calling it. That's out now. It was I believe was authorized in Canada a few days ago. That's what we need people to do is to take that. I got it last week. Um, and, And because it specifically targets these new circulating variants that belong to the XBB class, whereas the past immunizations have not. So um even though the number of hospitalizations is unlikely to climb as high as it was in 2021 or 2022 you're still at risk if you haven't gotten boosted in a while so get this new XBB mm. immunization
2: how how deadly is covid right now in comparison to to the flu for instance i mean at which point do we equate the two in in the way in which we we deal with it
0: uh, you know i never like comparing so each fuck as I like to say, each virus pathogen is its own little shop of horrors. And, and I know I usually try not to compare one with the other, but you know, COVID uh, does, does a few things. We, we often just focus on, on the deaths and of course that's significant as well as hospitalizations, but there are a few other things going on, which is that um, the, the specter of long COVID in individuals, especially those with severe illness. So while long COVID can occur in anybody, Even with asymptomatic uh, COVID, COVID without symptoms, more likely it occurs with severe COVID. And so by getting vaccinated, um, there's a recent analysis showing you're 30 to 40% less likely to get long covid as well if you keep up with your immunizations and that's really important because this is not a time in your life when you want to be bogged down with brain fog or depression or uh, or cardiovascular or respiratory insufficiency so that's some that's something else and then for the kids there's also now emerging evidence about the role of covid-19 causing uh, a link to type 1 diabetes so, although we don't have the data specifically to show that vaccination will prevent that, it's 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 not too much of a stretch to think that's the case. So, I think you know people just focus only on 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 deaths, and deaths are still significant. Um, but but there are a lot of other reasons to get mm. that immunization and get your flu immunization. And if you're a senior like me, uh, I've gotten my RSV new RSV vaccine, and that's important too. Mm-hmm.
2: I understand there's some some new research that suggests we may have. Potentially, a blood test to detect long COVID.
0: Yeah, we're well. We're certainly making a lot of progress to identifying what are call biomarkers uh, in the blood. In other words, certain signatures of of certain types of blood cells or certain types of proteins that may be um, associated with long COVID. So, so that that's helpful, and it and it really, you know, cements this idea that long COVID is a real phenomena because there are unfortunately. Covid denialists, anti-vaccine people out there want to claim that COVID nineteen doesn't even exist, and, and especially long COVID. And in fact, that's that's they're clearly wrong. Long long COVID is for real. And can devastate a lot of people. We don't know the length of time, but we're learning so much about long COVID in terms of um, autoantibodies and what we call microglial cell activation. There's also some evidence that maybe COVID-19 can reactivate Epstein-Barr virus, which is the cause of infectious mononucleosis. So some fascinating science going on. So I do think Eventually, we will have some pretty solid uh, biomarkers and therefore laboratory tests for long COVID as mm-hmm.
2: well. You mentioned, you know, encouraging people to get vaccinated. There is a new vaccine that's available um, potentially here in Canada. I, I don't actually. You said it was just gotten the green light here a couple of days ago. But, but how do you convince people to to continue on with this when there is, you know, there is a segment of the population that, like you mentioned, doesn't believe COVID exists, that are vaccine, um, they're, you know, they're not going to get a vaccine of any kind for, for any reason. Uh, and then there are those who are just kind of sick of hearing about COVID and they think, you know, the real risks are, are over. I've had it once, twice. I'm not worried anymore. So how do you how do you convince people at that point, yeah, you need to still go ahead and get one?
0: Well, the, the answer is I'm not, I don't really have the answer to your question because we've done a terrible job convincing, at least on the U.S. side, uh, Americans to take their, their their boosters. So last year there was a new bivalent booster that became available. Fewer than 20% of eligible Americans uh, took it. Um, but I, I can tell you that if you keep up to date with your immunizations, you're far less likely to get, um, become hospitalized or worse or develop long COVID. And, and we just have to keep, uh, you know, emphasizing that point, and be careful where you get your health information from, because there are a lot of people, individuals, groups, monetizing the internet with phony uh, uh, information about, about COVID, and so be pay close attention to the source of your information.
2: Mm-hmm. You're listening to The Sunday Magazine. I'm Rebecca Zanbergen, and this morning, I'm speaking with American pediatrician and virologist Dr. Peter Hotez about the pandemic. And what he describes as the rise of anti-science, and I know, Dr. Hotez, you've been sort of on the receiving end of that anti-science and received lots of vitriol from anti-vaccine activists. Uh, how, how did those threats, uh, those messages you receive, evolve and, and change over the last few years? What, what have you seen?
0: well thanks for that um yeah this is uh you know i devoted my life to developing new vaccines for poverty related diseases parasitic infections then we developed uh two COVID vaccines that have reached um over a hundred million people in 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 low and middle income countries and um and that's that's very exciting and and that was always the plan that's why i did my md phd a long time ago in new york city now um, we're trying to um, fight off um, assertions that vaccines do terrible things. And, and it began uh, when the fact that I have four adult kids, including Rachel, who has autism and intellectual disabilities, and I wrote the book, Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's uh, Autism, about my daughter, which does a deep dive showing the evidence there is no link between vaccines and autism, what autism is, how it begins early fetal brain development that also made me public enemy number one or two with anti-vaccine groups who were you know pushing fake autism cures on the internet or nutritional supplements or anti-vaccine books on amazon and but it also gave me a front row seat to seeing what this anti-vaccine movement was was all about and then about six seven years ago it took a new twist it it took a political turn it turned in the united states especially here in texas that got adopted by, um, uh, by the far right, uh, what we called here the, the Texas Republican Tea Party. And we even had a, a PAC, a political action committee supporting anti-vaccine groups. And, and that's what's come off the rails uh, in the US during COVID-19 um, in Texas alone during our Delta wave in the last half of 2021, and the BA1 wave in early 2022, an estimated 40,000 Texans, 40,000 needlessly perished because they refused a COVID vaccine during the Delta wave when vaccines were more than 90% protective and and widely available. And in the US, my estimate is around 200,000 Americans uh, losing their lives needlessly. And it happened because of elected leaders on the far right, what we call our House Freedom Caucus, um, certain senators, and then amplified every night on Fox News um, during the Delta wave. And this is documented by two groups, Media Matters, a watchdog group, um, as well as uh, ETH Zurich, the big federal university of science and technology out of Switzerland where Einstein studied Um, Every night um, on the nighttime Fox News anchors, they falsely discredited the effectiveness and safety of vaccines and and people bought it. They were victims of of this targeted political campaign um, against vaccines, a disinformation campaign. And. And, and I think the, the bottom line is we call it misinformation or infodemic. And, and I don't like using those terms because it implies it's just some random junk that appears out there on the internet. It's not. This is organized. It's deliberate and it's politically motivated mm. and it's predatory and people. Uh, accepted it and, and paid for it with their lives. And, and, and how do we stop that is, is a big question.
2: I wonder then why, why did you refuse to debate presidential candidate? He's a, a Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Anti-vaccine conspiracy theorist. You were uh, invited by Joe Rogan to debate uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. on, on the program. Why, why did you turn that down then?
0: Well, there are a few reasons. First of all, I, I've been dealing with him for a number of years. Um Back in 2017, when he said he was invited by a pres- then new, newly inaugurated President Trump to head a vaccine commission, I was asked by the National Institutes of Health to speak with him, which I did in a series of conversations and emails um, mediated by a third party, and they were not productive. You know, he kept on moving the goalpost of what he was talking about. First, he said it was the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine that caused autism, then thimerosal preservative in vaccines that caused autism, then spacing vaccines, close together, and alum in vaccines, and then it was the HPV vaccine for cervical cancer and other cancers, he said was causing infertility or autoimmunity, and he, you know it just became an exercise in, in frustration. So I, I knew they weren't, he was very dug in, and I knew they weren't going to be productive. And second, you know, I think... i think it's 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 wrong to uh give this give someone like this a a platform who's aggressively pushing anti-science disinformation it's also not also it sends the wrong message to young people who are thinking about careers in science you know science is not something we typically debate we we have proven approaches for science right we we write our sign we write our papers, submit them to journals they get um, uh, there's requests for major revisions to address concerns. Sometimes you have to do more experiments. Sometimes the paper's rejected. Same with grant applications. Or you present your findings at scientific conferences in front of your peers and critical audiences. I, and that's the method how science is done. I can't think of really any instance where science was advanced through a public debate. Hmm. Um, you know, m- maybe in their 20s, you know, there were famous public discussions between Einstein and, and Niels Bohr about quantum theory and, and relativity but that that was very different um so so I think you know it sends the wrong message that that science is something up for deba- debate and the more clever the individual is that 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 advances the science and I think that that was wrong to to push that as well and lastly there was another agenda I mean clearly there are forces out there that are looking for ways to legitimize uh, Mr. Kennedy as a serious presidential candidate, and having him d- debate um, uh, a major U.S. scientist is, is is one way to doing that. And I just wasn't interested in helping mm-hmm. him. How
2: how did we end up where we are? Where 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 it seems there are a lot of people who have in some regard, disdain for scientists and the work that they're doing. And, and of course, they don't trust scientists and they believe they have ulterior motives. I mean, w- w- how did we get here, do you think?
0: Well, I think, the, the, you know, there's often a lot of finger pointing at the scientists saying that we're not communicating as well or often as we should and and the, the quality of our communications is inadequate. And, and that may be partly true, but it shouldn't, it shouldn't, Override the overwhelming reason for this, and that there was a targeted and predatory attack on both science and scientists. And so now, what's happening? You know, with my pointing out that two hundred thousand Americans needlessly perish because of this targeted campaign, you're instead of seeing a pause for self-reflection, you're seeing a doubling down and efforts by the far right, you know, to to revise history and and to claim that it was the vaccines that That killed Americans, which is absolute nonsense. Or to claim that the scientists invented the virus. There's this revisionist history going on. And, you know, and it's coming from, uh, you know, people with political motivations. I even have, you know, people like Steve Bannon publicly declaring me a criminal, which is quite interesting also.
2: How, How do we turn the train around then?
0: Yeah, that's the hardest question at all. And and one of the things, so I'm going to give you now a very long, I don't know the answer to your question answer, which is um, in that this has become a political enterprise linked to political extremism on the right linked to authoritarianism. And so the health sector and the science sector is clearly fumbling. They don't know what to do. And so you start seeing efforts to talk to the social media heads about switching up computer algorithms or putting out more uh, quality more and more information about uh, vaccines and more information about the science and all that's good but it doesn't get to the core of this which is that there is a nefarious element seeking actively to discredit science and scientists and now it's it, it's it's globalizing, right? This has moved up into Canada. It's moved up into it's in 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 central and western Europe. It's even affecting now immunizations and vaccine uptake in low and middle income countries. So I had a meeting with Dr. Tedros, the head of the World Health Organization, at the end of last year to signal the alarm that our whole vaccine ecosystem is now at risk.
2: Does it get Does it get worse before it gets better?
0: Well, it's I, I see this continuing to accelerate at least until the 2024 election. I mean the the pitch and the volume is just extraordinary right now and in the pile on from from these same sources. So I don't see certainly I don't see it getting better um, up until the up until next year on this time. What happens after that is is anyone's guess. I think, you know, what we're going to need to do is find a way to to take this on and, and confront it and and try to counter it, but it's going to need the scientists can't do this alone and and the health sector can't do this alone. We're going to need our elected leaders to stand up to this and say, you know, at some point we, you know, we, while everyone is entitled to their views, even extremist views, there's, I have no issue with that. Somehow we've got to find a way to uncouple the anti-science from it because that one's going to kill you. Um, And, and it has, I mean, we're not, this is not some theoretical or academic discussion. 200,000 Americans died because of this. And, and 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 now it's become a lethal societal force right up there with global terrorism or nuclear proliferation or cyber attacks or anything else that we put devote infrastructure into combating. I think we have to do the same for anti-science. And, and that's the case the book makes.
2: OK, Dr. Peter Hotez, we will leave it there. Thank you for your time this morning.
0: Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity.
2: Dr. Peter Hotez is the Dean of the Baylor College of Medicine and co-director of the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development. His new book is called The Deadly Rise of Anti-Science, A Scientist's Warning. You're listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast. I'm Rebecca Zanbergen. For anyone who is not familiar with the British writer Catlin Moran, I definitely start to introduce her and her work by using an F word. Funny, to be sure, also frank and fearless. But first and foremost, the word I'd reach for is feminist. Just look at the titles of her recent bestsellers, How to Be a Woman, More Than a Woman, How to Build a Girl, which makes it a little surprising that her latest is written about boys and men. It's called What About Men? And it presses plenty of hot buttons along
4: the way to answering that question. Catelyn Moran, good morning. Oh, hello. Lovely to talk to you. And I want to try and make those hot buttons just a more local, sort of <laughs> lukewarm, safe temperature. That's very much my vibe. Take a controversial <laughs> thing and try and make it as safe as possible. Perfect.
2: Love it. OK, well, Catelyn, what what business does a feminist have writing about boys and men?
4: What? Why did you do this? Well, I mean, because boys and men kept asking me, to be honest. Um, <laughs> and at the start, it made me quite peevish. Um, I've spent the last sort of 10-12 years writing about women and girls and feminism. And whenever I do a live event, I spend an hour talking about women and girls and feminism. And then either the second or third question I would be asked from the audience would be, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what about men? And at first I was like, I don't care. Like, they seem to be fine. And it would be the ultimate irony of feminism, would it not, if women had to solve the problems of women and then solve the problems of men. Uh, but this question kept being asked and it came to a head at International Women's Day a couple of years ago. Hooray, we get a day of our own. And uh, I'd gone in to speak to a load of 16 and 17 year olds in a college, half boys, half girls, to talk about the problems of women and girls. And the boys weren't having any of it. They were like, we always talk about women and girls. We're always talking about their problems. What about our problems? Women are actually winning now compared to men. Feminism has gone too far. And they were angry. And I'm always intrigued when you meet a cohort of people who are angry, because generally angry people are scared people, because anger is just fear brought to the boil. And I was like, well, what could it be that in the 21st century is making boys and men scared of women and girls? Like, what, what is it that they fear? And uh, and at that point, I realized, well, that was the question I needed to ask myself and hopefully answer in, in my next book. So that was when I started to write What About Men?
2: Hmm. I mean, you just asked too. Don't they? They seem to be fine. I mean, what, what, what did you discover was wrong with men, and what, what have they been so fearful of?
4: Well, I mean, as people say, I went on a journey because uh, I did think that men were generally fine. But very early on in my research for the book, I found a very Dolorous list of problems that affect boys and men. So boys are more likely to be medicated at school for disruptive behavior. They're more likely to be excluded at school. They're less likely to go on to further education. They're more likely to become addicted to alcohol, drugs or pornography, more likely to join a gang, uh, more likely to be involved in violence. Uh, they make up the majority of the homeless population, the majority of the prison population. And in the UK, the leading cause of death for men under the age of 50 is suicide. So What I thought was going to be, you know, a sort of funny, you know, truthful, honest, you know, loving, warm, affectionate book about men, suddenly took this turn into me using the word heartbreaking a lot, which was not a word that I'd expected. I think that is the the word that I use most in the book. I suddenly saw that we've got a whole host of problems with boys and men, and we don't have the network or infrastructure or even language to talk about men and boys and how their lives need to change and how maybe their role models need to improve in the way that we are so used to as women uh, and feminists. Like kind of if you have any problem as a woman or a girl, you can just type it into Google and 30 seconds later, there'll be a TikTok or a blog or a movie or a song by Beyonce that will answer your question and solve your problem. (laughs) And there just isn't that resource for men. We don't have a male Beyonce and I think we need one.
2: I, I'll get to some of that a little in a little bit, but to be clear, none of this is about some connection to feminism and feminism having gone too far, is it?
4: No. Well, I, I will what I, what I realized that when men are saying sort of feminism has gone too far, when you get those kind of sort of radicalized sort of people on the right who are misogynists, who sort of hate feminism, I, I suspect that the, the suggestion that I make in the book is that they're actually envious of feminism, because feminism is the only thing that women and girls have got that men don't have. You know, let, let's be honest, like kind of clearly women aren't winning. You know, we still buy any indice, you know, we have the pay gap, uh, men still dominate in business, uh, in politics, financially. And we know that really dolorous fact that one in women will be sexually assaulted or raped. So the only thing that women and girls have that men don't have that could make them think that women and girls are winning is feminism. We have invented this amazing thing that allows us to look at problems of gender and then you know, share our problems together, confess these things in a supportive environment, name them, and then campaign... To solve these problems, and men just don't have that. And I think ultimately, that's what a lot of these guys who are saying feminism has gone too far, feminism is cancer. I think that's the ultimate emotion underneath it. I think it's it's actually envy. I think they're jealous of what we have. And and which
2: men are you talking about? Because it does seem as though it's it's not about all men. I mean, I don't know if you're talking about uh, men from from racialized communities or men from you know poor communities. Like, who are you talking
4: about? I'm primarily talking about straight white men, Uh, first of all, because I think uh, communities of color and the LGBTQ community have been much better at at talking about their problems and campaigning against them. They're very visible. You know, we have Black History Month. We have uh, pride celebrations like that. There is an organization. There is movement. There are marches. You know, those communities talk about those things. The thing is about straight white men is, I mean, I've been talking about this book now for five months. Even now, when I say straight white man, I feel a bit uncomfortable because we're so used to the phrase straight white men leading into a problematic conversation. Someone will start being racist. Someone will start being homophobic. And, you know, as a category, to say that you are a straight white man, I think for, for many boys now and men, makes them feel some kind of shame, like they've done something wrong. Like they are the patriarchy. They are the ones that are oppressing everybody. And of course, when she start reading about how patriarchy works, I think we've always generally thought, particularly as women, as patriarchy being a thing that just affects women and crushes women. It's not. In you know, a huge amounts of the, the pressure that patriarchy puts on on people is other men. Those few men at the top who go, this is what being a man is. Man up, don't cry. Don't confess your anxieties. You know, you should be in charge of these things. Uh, you know, it's it's fine to go out there and sort of like shout comments at women and stuff. Th- that's the patriarchy. Most men and most straight white men are not in the patriarchy and they are not benefiting from it. It is visibly affecting them and, and making their lives more unhappy, as we see from that list of problems that I quoted before. You know
2: They're not benefiting at all from it.
4: The patriarchy. Well, in the in the list of problems that I list there, I would say the the thing is with patriarchy. Obviously, there are advantages to being kind of the ruling classes, but it also means that you have you have the weaknesses of that that classic idea of being a man. So you cannot share your emotions, you cannot talk about your anxieties, you cannot admit vulnerability or weakness. You know, it's a mixed grill, as they say. You know, obviously there are some advantages to being a straight white man, but there are also visible statistical disadvantages. And, And until we can start talking about those problems, while we still think that it's problematic to talk about straight white men, and listen to them repeatedly and more heatedly saying, you know, we are sad, we are suffering, you know, we feel that that no one is talking about us unless they're blaming us for everybody's problems. We're just going to have, as we can, you know, observe, you know, a, a coming generation of boys who are becoming angrier and angrier. And I don't want that. I don't want that for my girls. You know, I, I don't want that for women and I don't want that for men. As any woman will tell you, 50% of any woman's problems tend to be men. It's angry men, it's men that harass you, it's men that talk over you, it's men that don't promote you. You know it's men that are abusive to you. So we can't fix the girls until we fix the boys. There's there's no value in allowing men to continue feeling angry and aggrieved and unable to address their problems. You know any parent will tell you that that's not gonna that, that's not gonna end up well around the dinner table. We mm-hmm. we have to listen to them and take their problems seriously.
2: And and who is reading your book? I mean, who is the book for? Is it for these men that you hope to somehow show they've gone astray?
4: Well, I'm a realist on this. I mean, even though I'm, 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 I was always surprised to find that my books about women, sort of a third of the readership were men, because I think they saw them as like manuals that they could read and go, oh, that's why my wife does that and <laughs> well, that's what she means when she says she's got nothing to wear today um but the statistics are that 80% of books are bought by women women are the ones that tend to be into these kind of books women are the ones that tend to be the ones that want to talk about problems so i i you know the book is written so half of it is for women of my age who are concerned about their husbands uh like as, as men get older they tend to become increasingly lonely one in five men at the age of 50 so they have no close friends uh they they're reluctant to go and get medical help men will So often wait until they've got a lump the size of a badger hanging off their neck before they go and see a doctor. Uh, And then the other half is written for mothers with teenage sons that they're worried or concerned about. Are they watching violent online pornography? You know, what are their friendship groups like? Are they experiencing violence at school that they're not talking about? Um, And do they have you know are they listening to and are they they you know absorbing the messages of these right wing figures such as andrew tate who had a survey in the uk today said that one in five boys in the uk said that he was their ultimate role model which is a, a statistic i find absolutely terrifying
2: how how did these boys these men these the, the this ultra version uh, of masculinity where where did it come from and why are we finding young men interested in that narrative do you think
4: well i i think from from my observation that when this recent wave of feminism started this fifth wave in about 2010 huge online thing that then led to sort of me too and stuff that the liberal sort of left wing men of my generation were like okay that's fair enough let's let the ladies have the floor like kind of i'm not at any point going to interrupt this huge massive wave of incredibly necessary feminism by going actually men have some problems too that would be rude and uncouth and very rapidly, a whole generation has passed. So their sons have now grown up in an era where we keep saying the future is female. When we talk about men, we talk about toxic masculinity. We say things like typical man, typical straight white man. And, you know, I'm a journalist. I know that every magazine would run a piece called 50 Women Who Are Changing the World, but we wouldn't write a piece called 50 Men Who Are Changing the World right now. And these are all good and recent correctives. But, of course, if you're 15 years old and a boy who's, like, struggling a bit with his life, you don't see what a recent corrective that is. You don't have that historical perspective. All you know is that all the way through your life, We aren't talking about boys and men. And whenever we do, we just tend to roll our eyes and go typical men, typical straight white men. So so I think that's why people like Andrew Tate and, you know, to a lesser extent, Jordan B Peterson have become so popular because they're the only people who in recent times have gone, yeah, we will talk about men. Unfortunately, I think the message that they're giving to young men and the advice that they're giving to young men is not going to be of any benefit to them at all, because the thing that they want to do is rewind the clock. They want to go back fifty or hundred years to a time when men were in control again, a time before feminism, before women had you know the vote and, and you know and, and jobs and autonomy over their own lives. And they—that's basically the cure that they are peddling to depressed, anxious boys worried about their futures. You need power. And I argue in the book that they need something that sounds very similar to that, which is empowerment. They need to learn how to self-soothe their anxieties. They need to learn how to get the skills that are gonna equip them for the future. They need to learn how to have supportive friendships. They need to learn how to talk about their problems and their vulnerabilities in the way that we, you know, women have in the feminist movement. That's what we have done. We never sought power over men. We just sought empowerment. And you know, I think it's quite visibly improved our lives. And that's the offer that I make to boys and men now. You can have what we had, that we've invented this thing where you can talk about your problems and come up with practical solutions rather than try and seek power over other people.
2: Sure, Surely, you know, in all of this discussion, there will be those, you know, you talked about the eye roll. You're kind of thinking, well, come on. I mean, they, they've they had the power for, for, for all of these years previously and 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 still do but, but sh- so should we be worried about about them at this point i mean buck up figure it out i don't know
4: yeah, but that doesn't work. I mean, obviously we think that, don't we? But then if you say that to a 15-year-old boy, like kind of who's, who's miserable and anxious and you know, inhaling hours of Andrew Tate's life advice every every day, that's not going to make him think about his choices. It's not going to solve his problems. And it just means that you've got these increasingly radicalised boys out there um, who, who don't have anybody able to give them advice. And I talked to a really um, uh, fascinating sort of de basically, of boys that have become immersed in extreme online misogyny. And he was saying that, Uh, You know, as liberal parents, I think we're often kind of like, if we find out our sons are into these kind of role models, we will just immediately go, but this man is terrible. You shouldn't listen to this. And of course, no one ever gave up a hero because their parents said, this guy's not cool. What you need to do instead is basically, first of all, Give them a really important life lesson that we all choose heroes when we're younger, that at some point we find out will let us down. We find out we have chosen the wrong heroes. And at that point, you have a really important decision to make in your life. You can either double down and go, no, this is my guy. It's a conspiracy theory. These evidences that are being presented against him. I still love this guy. Or you can do what you will have to do in your adult life time and time again, which is to allow your heart be a bit broken, realise that you've made a wrong mistake, and then go and find a better role model. And there are so many amazing role models out there for young men, but again, we don't when I think of a pantheon of feminist heroes, we're so good at putting out books called 100 Amazing Kickass Women from History. We're so good at kind of like celebrating our, our female role models and goddesses. We're not really doing that for this generation of boys. We're just leaving them to go out there on the Internet and find some sour, dark person who is basically going to ruin not only these boys' teenage lives, but the lives of the girls that are in their lives.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, I think part of the reason feminists and you know are so good at it is because they've been forced to, in the wake of just you know everything else that's out there being a white man for so long they they found ways to highlight things that were not a white man and and one of the things you talk about too is which I think is really interesting, which again is sort of the opposite of what you hear is 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 boys who are concerned about their body image, which you know when we sexualize women's body parts i I just never really thought about why we would be worried about men and the way they perceive their bodies because they haven't been subjected to the same sort of um, scrutiny that women have for so long. So why did you want to focus on on body image of men and boys?
4: Well, again, I mean, every chapter is based on statistics. So there's a terrifying raise in the amount of boys who have body dysmorphia and have a thing called bigorexia, which is a, a, a ridiculous name for a serious condition, where they believe that, that however much time they spend in the gym and however much muscle they put on, they're not big enough. And if you just observe in my lifetime, like kind of like the role models, the physical role models that we had for boys. When I was growing up, you know, the, the most famous action hero in the world was Indiana Jones. He was pretty fit for an archaeologist, but was in no way an Olympian. And when Harrison Ford played Han Solo in Star Wars, he always had the air of someone who'd be running down a spaceship corridor and was about to lean on the wall and have a fag and go, I am knackered. And then now here we are, 20, 30 years later, when you're watching those superhero movies, Those men have absolutely unrealistic body types. And I I recount in the book how I went for dinner with a very famous director of a superhero franchise. He was saying... You know i've worked in this industry for years the kind of body images that we've been giving women are nuts every female actress i know has had to starve in order to be on the camera but it's actually worse for men because they have to put on muscle as well like they're just they're, 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 a lot of them are taking steroids illegally they're having to sort of work out to the level of an olympian every day they're putting this unrealistic amount of muscle mass on then they have to dehydrate in order for the muscle definition and the veins to show up on camera and then they're sitting in ice baths at night in terrible pain necking painkillers and th- those are the role models that young boys have now. And again, we're older. We don't see these kind of, you know, what an impact this makes on young men. You know, you, you don't see kind of like, you know, scrawly, normal-faced, uh, normal-bodied men on in movies anymore. It's all these massive superheroes. And it's making boys have very unrealistic ideas of what they should look like. And the problem is, again... With women in the last 10, 15 years, we've been so good at talking about unrealistic female body images, like kind of like, you know, every actress in the world has now spoken out about how crazy, you know, her diet regime is and will sort of give rueful interviews about it. No male actors talking about that. No superhero has complained about that. And similarly within the culture... Go anywhere you want on TikTok or YouTube and there's brilliant young feminists doing brilliant funny songs and stand-up routines about unrealistic body images and also celebrating normal bodies. The amount of girls that you see on Instagram who are sitting there with their rolls out and their stretch marks in a bikini smiling and all their friends are going fire emoji, dancing girl emoji, you you look slaying. If a fat boy posted a picture of himself in his trunks... No, no, no. None of his male friends would go. You look amazing. There would either be an uncomfortable silence, or people would think that he'd lost his mind. And so, this this sense of like a of a community that will celebrate you for discussing your weaknesses and your vulnerabilities just isn't there for boys. They always they don't cry. They have to man up. They have to be muscular. They can never admit to to a weakness. And I hate that for our boys. I, I see the liberation our girls have had of being able to talk about their problems and overcome them. And it, that option just isn't there culturally for boys at the moment.
2: Mm. and And what about sex and the the expectations because of porn maybe
4: oh gosh so the the chapter I think that's had the most reaction is the one about a boy called Sam who I've known since he was three who he's now twenty two and admitted to me a couple of years ago that he had been terribly addicted to the very extreme online pornography to the point of it kind of ruining his life and his sexual function and his relationships. And I think as parents, we don't realize what's happening again with the sort of younger generation. We think, oh, we'll give them a talk about porn and sex when they're like 13 or 12 or 11. These kids are going into school and seeing it when they're eight, because your child's entry into the world of pornography is absolutely predicated on usually the most damaged kid in your class. Someone who probably comes from an abusive background themselves, showing you on their on their camera phone, their iPhone, some porn and going, hey, look at this. This is weird, right? This is funny. Or like, or you know, this is you know, this is sexy. And because they're so young when they're seeing this, we haven't been able to give them as adults the conversation that they need to know before they start seeing this stuff, which is you don't just look at it and laugh at it, you know, or or be shocked by it or be aroused by it. It will look into you because whatever sexual imagery you're seeing at that age, that will become your sexual imagination. Of course it is. That's the information that you've got. And if you're watching these unrealistic, abusive, unpleasant you know, images of sexuality when you're eight or nine or 10, that's, that's going to wire your sexual responses for the rest of your life. And as we can see from the, the dizzying rise of sexual strangulation, uh, which in, in the UK, 69 deaths of women have already been accorded to, we're, we're showing this young generation of, of men, you know, and the girls that are watching it, we're, we're telling them that this is normal when it's incredibly dangerous. And of course, when you're seeing it in porn, they're on a set They've agreed to it in a contract. There are, you know, there are medics there. Like they've agreed how long this is gonna last. But if you then copy that as a 15-year-old, maybe slightly drunk with your girlfriend, you you could be in the face of a medical emergency and This is, you know, this is, I can't believe those humans, clever, brilliant humans with all this technology and our ability to communicate that we've managed to screw up sex for teenagers. You know, animals manage to do it on shed roofs in the rain and have a jolly old time. And somehow we've managed to raise this generation of kids who don't know what sex is or think that it involves near death experiences. Like this is, I mean, I laugh because I'm horrified. I just, I can't believe that we've, we've gone so badly wrong with our young kids
2: you you talk about a lot of problems in the book and and you know you, chiefly among them boys not being able to talk about the things that are bothering them so is is your book i mean what 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 are the solutions you provide or and i know you're not you know you're not necessarily out there to provide solutions but maybe to identify a problem but but is it just permission for boys to realize there is a problem and to to be heard or, or, or what do you hope to achieve after after publishing this book
4: well, my job is always to start a difficult conversation. That's what I do as a columnist on the Times in London. That's what I do in my books. So, like, kind of, my 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 spider senses tingle if there's a subject that's taboo or shameful or guilty or secret or just simply hasn't been addressed. So, every single one of these chapters is basically a thing that I think we're not talking about or we don't know how to talk about. And basically, you get to blame me for starting a difficult conversation. You read this book and you go, "Oh my God!" Catherine Moran says in this book that you know, ninety eight percent of teenagers' sexual primary sexual education comes from pornography and then the best thing to do is to never confront a a young person head on and go are you watching this because they'll just go no you have to go are your friends watching this like do you know any friends who've seen this who are disturbed by it do you know any friends you've got a problem with this and that will immediately usually start a conversation because when kids talk about their friends, they're really talking about themselves. And similarly, as well, there's a lot of research that sitting down and staring at a young man in the eye and trying to have an emotional conversation. They find that very difficult. So if you can start these conversations side by side, like either doing a task together like going fishing or cooking or something or you know one of the best ones is in a car if you're in the front and he's in the back that's when you tend to be able to start those conversations because it just feels a bit more emotionally comfortable and sort of less confrontational um but yeah i think the i mean i've had so many parents coming up to me kind of like i think the key ones that they seem to be sort of like surprised by that hadn't occurred to them was one how young kids are watching pornography and how much we need to be talking to our kids as parents about that so that we can give them good information and secondly so many mothers who've got both teenage girls and teenage boys who are brilliant feminist mothers who've done everything they can to raise their girls as feminists and feel confident but suddenly realized that when they were talking about boys they were just saying in front of their teenage sons typical men and and that's and suddenly realizing the impact that that would have on a boy in the same way that 100 years ago we would just talk about women being weak and kind of needing to stay in the domestic sphere and men being the strong ones and the pride of our families we've kind of reversed those in terms of the messaging we're giving our kids.
2: Catelyn Moran I appreciate you making the time for us this morning it's been a fascinating chat thank you.
4: Oh thank you so much cheers darling.
2: Catelyn Moran's latest book is called What About Men? And that is it for this round of the Sunday Magazine Podcast. Our producers are Latifa Abden, Sarah Joyce Battersby, Tracy Fuller, Levi Garber, Andrea Huang, Pete Mitten, and Arande Williams. Our senior producer is Alison Maisman. Our executive producers are Brian Colton and Donna Dingwall. I'm Rebecca Zanbergen, in for Pia Chattopadhyay. Thanks for listening. Have a good week.